I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Richard Ambron, is a Columbia University Professor Emeritus of Cell Biology, Anatomy, and Pathology, specializing in and awarded research awards in neuroscience, working in the same lab as Nobel Prize-winning neuroscientist Eric Kandel. For 25 years, Richard taught clinical anatomy to medical and dental students and was 10 times voted Teacher of the Year. For 40 years, he ran a neuro research lab at Columbia, focusing on the mechanisms of neuronal regeneration and the identification of the molecular signals for pain, which succeeded in patenting a potent and selective drug that targets a key enzyme in certain kinds of chronic pain. Richard is the author of the soon-to-be-published The Brain and Pain, Breakthroughs in Neuroscience, which is the subject of today's interview. So Richard, welcome to Delving In. Thank you very much for having me. So before we launch into this, the main subject about pain, let's talk just a, very briefly about the brain in general, about what neurology tells us about the brain, that we're told nowadays that it, the brain is made up of circuits, modules, or networks. And I find it kind of interesting that we always have to use metaphors to understand things. And in the past, like during Freud's day, the, the most advanced machine were, were steam engines, and we talked about dammed up libido and pressure and release. And now, of course, the most up-to-date and advanced technology is the computer. So we talk about circuits and modules and networks. Give us a sense of the complexity of the brain, which, I, as you describe and others also describe as being the most complex object in the known universe. So just how complex is it? It's uh, unbelievably complex. And if you take into account the number of connections, the number of synapses a single neuron can have, which can range between 1,000 to, to uh, 10,000, and you multiply that times 100 billion neurons, the number of computational possibilities are almost infinite. And I think that recognizing that was in a kind of an impediment to research on the brain because people said, well, how, how is it possible that we're ever going to be able to understand how something that complex can work? What revolutionized the study of the brain was imaging real-time imaging in which one could set up a paradigm and then look at where in the brain the activity was occurring. And this certainly changed the view of the brain from some homogeneous, rapid dynamic interaction between untold number of synapses to the realization that the brain is really parceled into functions. And the functions are related to consciousness they're related to sensation, they are related to cognition, and the brain does not deal with all of these things at once. It has modules, it has select circuits that deal with this, which of course makes sense. There would be very little efficiency in having the entire brain process every single piece of information. So it parcels it out to a specific region and say, hey, you are responsible for a sensation, you're responsible for thoughts, you're responsible for subconscious ideas about things. And I think that that has been the major breakthrough in the last five to 10 years. So you have both specialization of different uh, areas of the brain, and you also have massive, massive interconnection. And that's one way in which uh, the brain is different than current computers. It just, that's one way in terms of the, the, just the massive amount of interconnection, which is why I think uh, we're able to, let's say, think of an association to a word in a split second. 
it, it's it's amazing how how fast that can happen. Yeah, but I think that the the brain is much more dynamic. It can take pieces of information from diverse sources, integrate that information, and come up with an outcome. Computers are data in, data out. The brain is much more flexible, and it can do much more in that sense. And of course, the other difference between a brain and a computer is that the result of exposure to experience results in a changing of the hardware. There was the actual connections change. Correct. Plasticity. Whereas the computer, as far as I know, you, it doesn't grow new circuits in response to the input of information. Yeah, I think, I think that that's right. But I think we have to keep in mind that when they build these circuits and make them smaller, sometimes what emerges are processes that were not programmed into the computer. These are emerging functions. And they arise because these parts are close together and they're beginning to influence each other. So I'm, not, I'm interested in whether or not this actually occurs in circuits in the brain, whether that not everything is transmitted by synapses and action potentials, but that there is interactions between uh, axons and connections that are close by. But that's speculation. Okay, so just one more general question before we launch into to pain, so to speak. Are all neurons alike? Because from what I've read, that's sort of true in, in the neuron in, a, in an animal is the same as a neuron in another animal, but then within the same animal, there are different neurons that use different neurotransmitters. There may be different shapes, like the, the axons of our arms and legs are incredibly long, whereas the ones in the brain are probably very short uh, by comparison. So are all neurons alike? And, or, I mean, the specialization seems to have more to do with the connections that are being made and, uh, rather than the type of neuron. Neurons are very different. And we just discussed the neurons that are involved in sensation. All of the neurons involved in sensation have a common arch architecture. They have a cell body that sits in a ganglion just outside the vertebral column. They have a very long process that goes out into the periphery, travels through the nerves that we see, and they connect with their targets. And then it has a central process that enters the spinal cord and interacts with another neuron, a so-called second-order neuron that communicates that information to the brain. For every sensation, and I'm generalizing to some extent, for every sensation, there's a group of neurons. So there are a subset of neurons that detect pain. There's a subset that detect proprioception, that is our consciousness of our body. There's a set for touch, there are multiple sets for touch, actually light touch, dark touch. There's even a set that detects itch and temperature. So each sensation basically is linked to a specific subtype of neuron that communicates information from the environment that is cued to be activated by whatever that clue is. So this has major implications for drug development, which we'll talk about later in the interview. But if a particular neuron for pain is, is uh, special in some way, then it's possible maybe a, a drug could target just that kind of neuron and without affecting too many other things. As, it, as we'll talk about later, it's not quite that specific, but it's certainly at least somewhat. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was the hypothesis for a long time that if you find a subclass of neurons that are different from others, if you can determine how they're different and you wanna do something, you wanna manipulate that neuron, then the way to do it is to take advantage of the difference and somehow develop a drug or some other inhibitor to, uh, to alter the function of that neuron. That's, that's the hypothesis. 
Okay, let's segue now to talking about pain. You describe pain as the most important sense for survival. I mean, that seems pretty obvious in a way, but please explain what you mean by that. The most important sense, more important than, I mean, it would be worse to lose the sense of pain than to lose vision or hearing, for instance. Well, without the sense of pain, you're not going to survive very long because the main function of pain is to alert us to the fact that there is a threat or an injury to the body that has to be dealt with. So people who are born without the neurons that mediate pain don't survive very long. So it's essential for survival. You can be, you can be blind, but you can be deaf, and you can survive perfectly well. But if you don't have pain, you're not going to survive longer because you're going to be exposed to things when you're young, knives are sharp, stoves are hot, that you're not going to be aware of. And as I said, people who have these defects in the neurons that mediate pain uh, don't survive very long. Right. And then, of course, with pain, sometimes it's a warning that damage is about to occur. Elite athletes know that there's a little margin between pain and damage, and they push it. They push their performance so that they can withstand enough pain so that they can accomplish even more than they did the last time, but not so much that they damage their, their bodies. And that's absolutely correct. That's why pain is subjective. If you consider the reward to be worth the pain, you are willing to bear the pain. So an athlete, a runner, the marathoner, when he's close to the finish line and the pain is building up, he will be willing to bear the pain in order to finish the race. And that's, that is a system that is built into the pain system. It's a reward system. I mean, the other advantage of why pain is so important is because it's adaptive. It enables us to protect an injured area for long periods of time. If you get a pinprick to your finger, you will experience that pain for a few minutes and then basically it's over. But if the injury is more serious, you need to protect that finger from further injury. So the, the, the system, the pain system adapts and prolongs the period of pain so that that, that finger is gonna be protected. And that's an interesting aspect of this because that time interval between the initial pain, how long the pain lasts, is determined by a series of receptors, channels, and kinases. And, and some of those signals are, are uh, being emitted from a damaged cell, right? And, and then uh, depending on how many cells are damaged, that's you get more and more of that chemical that then uh, stimulates the, the, the pain nerve. One of the most abundant molecules in cells is adenosine triphosphate, ATP. So the endings for the nerve fibers are naked. That is, they're not surrounded by a special transducing mechanism as you find in touch and some of these other uh, sensory modalities. So that you have the terminal of that neuron exposed out there in the skin. When the skin is ruptured and cells are damaged, ATP is released. So it makes sense that the ending of the pain neuron would have a receptor that recognizes ATP. And it says, oh, there's been an injury. And then that is a signal transduction reaction in which the binding to the ATP receptor uh, activates kinases that activates a channel that then results in the action potential. But the other thing is that pain is not only due to an injury, but can be due to inflammation. And that's one of the most difficult kinds of pain to deal with because it doesn't necessarily mean that, there's a, that, that there is an injury. So inflammatory pain due to cytokines, prostaglandins, and things like that 
can be masked. They can happen in places in the body where there's no obvious pathophysiology. So that would be in things like rheumatoid arthritis, for instance? Um, yeah, anytime there's an inflammatory response, exactly. And if you want a real puzzle, consider this. If you undergo surgery and by accident a sponge is left on a nerve, that sponge will elicit an immune response and you will suffer from unbearable pain. The pain of that is almost ex one of the most excruciating kinds of pain. But if you don't know that the sponge is there, you'll never figure out where it is. And the, um, the remarkable thing is that the pain is not going to be felt where the sponge is. It's going to be felt at the where the terminal of the neuron was. So the pain is referred. Yeah. And in your book, you talk about referred pain, particularly for injuries to the internal organs, the viscera, that the pain can be referred to the skin. So I think uh, if I remember right, this, if this injury to the spleen, you'll feel it on the shoulder. And if you have appendicitis, you feel it in the middle of your belly. Yep. And then it gets, then it gets referred to the somatic system and it's referred on, and they have maps of the body. So you can, surgeons and, and clinicians can make a diagnosis based on where, if there's no obvious damage, they can look at the map and say, oh, well, this could be coming from the gut. This could be coming from the appendix, et cetera. Yeah, another uh, kind of central or, or general point that you make at the beginning of the book is that the sensation of pain is highly complex, more so than vision or hearing. And I, I think I would clarify that a little bit, that the, the information is internal and not external, uh, and, and, and the information may not be as richly complex, but the causes, the neurological causes, are from the interaction of several brain systems, and that's what's so complicated. It's, it's not the information that's complicated. I mean, you're in pain, maybe there's a, a few different kinds of experiences of pain, but the causes of the pain are, are in, incredibly interconnected. Well, I, the, it's the interpretation of the information that is getting into the central nervous system about the pain. If there was no modulation of pain for reward, for fear, for all these other things that make pain subjective, every time you got an injury, the pain would be the same. But there are remarkable cases of people who are severely injured and they feel no pain. And that's because there are all along the pain pathways, there are ways in which the synapses are modulated. So what we ultimately experience as pain is not perhaps what originally happened, but is dependent on our mood, dependent on our previous experience, depending on whether we were motivated. Um, there are a whole host of other conflating issues into what we experience finally as pain. So the, the experience of pain then is not just a simple registering of a sensation of an injury, but it's, it has to be transmitted via sensory nerves to the brain. It's, it's, it's via cranial nerves if it's in the head and then uh, from the spinal cord if it's below the head. What happens after the, that point? If you could just kind of uh, map it for us. You have the injury, you have the registering by the sensory nerves, and then where does it go from there? Okay, the, the pain from the body, we're going to exclude the pain from the head because that system is more complicated. The basics are the same. It still takes three neurons to get the information from a lesion to the brain. But if we deal just with the pain from the body, the second order neurons, axon, will synapse on third order neurons in the thalamus. And that's a collection of cell bodies that lie at the top of the brainstem. So that is the first appearance of the signals, the information from the injury that is getting up to the brain. And 
the thalamus can be viewed as a hub. It's receiving this information in terms of action potentials. And now it's going to send this information to the cortex. And that cortex is then going to evaluate and put the subjective evaluation of whether the pain should be experienced at this level, that level, whatever. In addition, the thalamus sends the information to a specific set of cortical neurons in the postcentral gyrus. And on the, in that gyrus is a map of the human body. And so when it sends information, say, from the toe, it activates the cortical neurons in the region of that map that corresponds to the toe. And you say, oh, the pain is coming from my toe. So that map contains information from every single point on the body. So that's how the brain knows where the lesion is. The other thing is that it's, it was not clear for many years exactly whether the thalamus was the first place in which pain was truly perceived. By perceived, I mean we were aware of the pain. And this is somewhat controversial, but it now appears that what you gain from the thalamus is a general awareness that there's been an injury but not the onerous or suffering that would be expected from the pain. And this comes from an unusual set, not an unusual, but an unfortunate series of operations that they did on people who were psychopathic and violent. They did lobotomies. And one of these lobotomy patients was working in the, uh, the kitchen and he severely burned his hand. And when they rushed up to him, he looked at his hand. He said, oh, he said, wow, that's really bad, but I don't care. So this was the first understanding that the onerous aspect, the suffering of pain, does not arise from the thalamus, but is imposed later on by higher centers in the brain. So what we become aware of in the thalamus is, yes, there's an injury, and we know where that injury is. But we're not going to be suffering yet because we might want to change that injury depending on whether it's due to something that we were afraid of, which will make the pain worse. If we're anxious, the pain will be worse. On the other hand, if there's a reward, the pain will be less. So we can then modulate the output. What, what the output from the thalamus to the cortex is going to determine how much suffering there is. And this can be really regulated to a, an amazing degree. So maybe another way to put this is that you can feel that there's pain, but the, it's not labeled as as unpleasant. It's just another just another sensation. Exactly. Kind of indifference. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of hard to get your head around this that you can be aware of pain but not suffer, but that that is seems to be the case. We were just talking about the possibility of feeling pain as. It's just another sensation without it feeling onerous or unpleasant. Uh, this reminds me a little bit, and this is getting a little bit into the psychological kinds of pain. Some people uh, in response to antidepressants, particularly SSRIs, experience what people call affective numbing. And you hear people sometimes saying, well, I'm, st I'm still depressed in terms of you know, the way I'm functioning, but I don't care anymore. I'm indifferent to it. It doesn't hurt as much. Exactly. That is a modulation of the pathway on the way to the brain. The SSRIs, the, um, the opioids can shut the pain down completely. Those are modulations of the circuit before it gets to the brain. 
So we're, we're talking that pain is not an, an automatic response to, to, to a lesion. It can be blocked. And one way it can be blocked is by, by opioids, but including endogenous opioids, opi opioids that we have within our own bodies. And presumably that's the way a, a pain placebo works, that it's actually making uh, uh, the body release or the brain release endogenous opioids. And I, I guess that's been proven because if you give an opioid blocker and naloxone, it actually blocks the placebo response, which is kind of amazing. Exactly. But there are natural ways to do it too. So for instance, a mother's kiss can, it seems with a, a kiss of, uh, of her small child can, if it's the pain is mild, especially, it can block the pain, it seems. It somehow re releases uh, through that kiss, re releases the endogenous opioids. Or it distracts the child from the pain because distraction is the other main mechanism. If you distract a person who's in pain, the pain will not be present. It seems that despite this, the tremendous complexity of, the, of this central nervous system, the brain, it really cannot attend to more than one thing at a time. In terms of consciousness? In terms of consciousness, yeah, I'm not dealing with meta-consciousness or thoughts. If you're walking in a park, you are somehow aware of the fact that you're alive. Okay, we, we can call that meta-consciousness. Then you hear a siren, and suddenly your attention is drawn to the siren. But then you hear a baby cry, and you listen to the baby cry, and you ignore the siren. So you are flitting from one thing to another. So your attention is drawn to one item, then the brain shifts to something else. So one item can take priority over another. The, one of the main priorities, of course, is an injury, pain. That's going to su supersede everything. You're listening to a siren and you injure yourself. You're not going to even hear the siren. So one of the keys to controlling pain is to regulate attention, divert attention away from the pain. And of course, uh, you mentioned earlier that if the re reward is big enough, then that becomes a really major distraction. I'm thinking about one uh, example of that from the 1996 Olympics. Uh, Carrie Stroog, the uh, gymnast, had injured her ankle on a vault. And yet she had to do one last vault in order to try to win the gold medal for her team, which she did. And so she vaulted onto an injured ankle. And presumably she felt it on some level, but it seemed that she really felt it only right after. That while she was, her mind was on the performance of the vault, she probably was concentrating really almost exclusively on that. And then as soon as she landed, you know, she stuck the landing and and then felt the pain and, and collapsed and had to be carried to the metal podium. Yeah, that was uh, absolutely astounding. But you're absolutely right. It, reward pays uh, has a, a very important role in the intensity of pain. And reward is linked to belief. Religious people, people who uh, flagellate themselves to atone for their sins, believe that the pain is worth the effort because God is going to give, forgive them for their sins. But the reward system does not act independently of cognition. So now, in order for the, the, for the reward system to kick in and make a decision, it has to have information. The reward system does not make decisions. It kind of takes the decision and then transfers it to the centers that relate the intensity of the pain. So now you have to involve cognitive centers in the cortex that send information to the reward system that says, hey, you're going to bear this pain. 
So we're going to lower the intensity of the pain so that you can get your reward. So it seems to me that if the pain is associated very closely with reward, it can be taken almost as a signal of progress. So, you know, the expression, uh, no pain, no gain, uh, you know, particularly with uh, physical conditioning, but probably other things as well, that pain can be almost a sought after experience because it's so associated with success. Well, take masochists. I mean, a masochist doesn't want to be in pain if they're walking on the street. But if they are in a situation, and this is all contextual, if they're in a situation in which they are, they are going to be aroused, pain for them aids in the arousal. So that's part of the reward system that they, they are willing to, the belief that the arousal is going to give them a more gratifying sexual experience. And I suppose that's true of, um, of beer. Beer is a really bitter taste. <laughs> <laughs> But people learn that it is something pleasant about it, uh, both the physical effect and also the social uh, interaction. And so it becomes sought after and it becomes experience. The experience seems to change. It's uh, less uh, less of an unpleasant uh, stimulus. Of course, that's not necessarily pain, except maybe at a very low level. But the actual taste changes as a result. I mean, you're right. Uh, we were just talking about reward and how the reward system is modulated by the cognitive system that makes a decision. The placebo is most effective when the person who's receiving the placebo gets it from a person who's respected, who they believe is going to give them the right pill. If, if a doctor gives a placebo, it's much more effective than if somebody off the street says, hey, take this pill, this is gonna work for you. So belief, again, is a very important part of the reward system. And that is a, the belief in decision-making is part of the cognitive aspect of pain. Yeah, so when you mentioned the uh, cognitive and psychological and awareness and uh, placebo, it wasn't too long ago where those kinds of concepts were kind of dismissed as being non-physical and not quite real. That you know the brain is is physical and it's real, but uh, experience and, and consciousness and uh, those sorts of things and placebo was uh, was thought of as a mental thing, but I think we're, we're coming into a, an age in the last few decades or a couple of decades where the uh, world of experience and the world of the physical brain are being united and seen as really part of the same thing, and that something like the placebo effect can actually the results of the placebo effect can be seen on these uh, fMRI images uh, of, uh, of brain activity. You know, there's always a tendency that if you don't understand something, you dismiss it. And that's especially true with a doctor who's treating something that he just doesn't understand. So he'll say, well, if, if it was a woman, you know, you're just hysterical. Think about psychological pain. I mean, that, that was dismissed for many, many years. Uh, psychological pain is coming from uh, somewhere we don't understand. We now know that psychological pain actually triggers some of the same modules for pain in the central nervous system as pathological pain. You mean as uh, physical pain, right? Physical pain, right. And of course, uh, when it comes to uh, studying something like pain, as opposed to, let's say, uh, autonomic systems, the heart rate and breathing rate, it's pretty much impossible to avoid self-report as one of the sources of information. And I, I find that really interesting because, you know, that, that doesn't seem as scientific somehow. I mean, because science means 
uh, the ability to have multiple observers observing the same thing. But when it comes to conscious experience, we, we're kind of uh, forced to make the assumption that when I have a, a pain from a pricked finger, it's going to be a lot like yours. You know, I mean, of course, it can be blocked and all that. But the, the just the kind of neutral experience of being, let's say, pricked with a needle and uh, that, that there's something in common there. But it, it's not. Every person has a very basic level of acceptance of pain. And it's, it's probably built into the system. Well, let me, let me put it a little differently. And uh, I mean, of course, you know, pain is very individual also. But this also has to be something in common. When I say, oh, that was ex excruciating, you, you have to know what that means, right? That's right. And I can give it a number from one to 10, but I don't know for sure that my eight is going to be the same as your eight. That's exactly right. And there is a tremendous effort to try to find objective measures of pain. That is something that could be used to determine whether or not a person is at level five pain or level seven pain, et cetera. And this has not been successful. And believe me, the, the, the companies and the clinics that deal with pain, this is extremely important for them because they have to separate people who are really suffering pain from the malingerers and the ones who are faking it to get insurance. And it, it costs these pain clinics lots of money and in insurance if they make a mistake. So um, you're absolutely right. There is no objective measure of pain. Right. And so famously, you can look at a, a, an MRI of a back injury, of a spinal injury, and people with the what looks like the same level of damage can, can give rise to very different levels of pain. And we really don't understand quite why. I mean, I mean a lot of your book speaks to that, to that issue in terms of neurological suppression of pain. But it's still a mystery, I think. You know, why is it that some people have excruciating pain from one, from a similar injury and other people don't? Exactly. I mean, that's the question right now is unanswerable, other than to say that people have different tolerance levels. And, but what it is in the brain or the, the nervous system that de determines that tolerance level is not known. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are, Richard, about the kind of dominance of the brain and uh, neurological explanations in the media that if it's seen in the brain and you could see that the brain is lighting up that somehow it becomes real whereas the, the same thing could have been talked about for thousands of years but it doesn't get the same respect somehow <laughs> i'm not quite sure i understand what what is what do you mean well there does seem to be i mean for good reason i think there's been a fascination in recent decades with brain research and with findings about brain function and, and sometimes the finding will be something that seems f very familiar. Like it could have been talked about, let's say, by Buddhism thousands and thousands of years ago, but now it's been confirmed neurologically. So now it has a, uh, a kind of reality that it didn't have before in, in people's minds. Well, you don't have to go back a couple of thousand years. You can go back a couple of years. There are still people who don't believe that the functions of the brain emanate from the, from the material brain. They believe it emanates from some, um, what they call panpsychism, uh, the soul, whatever. So it's not universally accepted that the brain is the source of intellect. But I think that people who look at data and who are really aware of what's going on in neuroscience understand completely that the brain is the source of thought. We don't understand how thought emerges from the brain, but if you don't have the brain, you don't have thought. Or emotion. 
or emotion or any one of the conscious levels, except maybe for the metaconscious. Yeah. So the dualism, which is what you're what you're getting at, is is a very old belief that somehow the the mind or the soul is separate from the brain and can survive the brain. Of course, no one I think can possibly know about that, about whether that can be true. But it, it from everything we know about neurology, it's it seems difficult to believe that there's anything uh, after. Uh, that somehow separates from the brain. And I know there was some, I forgot the name of the scientist who thought that the soul had weight to it and, and actually put <laughs> put dying bodies on a very sensitive scale and did a before and after measure. And I think at, at the beginning, he, he, he found a small difference, but it turned out to be a problem of the scale. There wasn't any, uh, it wasn't any loss of weight. Yeah, my position on this is to be agnostic. I mean, there's no sense telling these people, well, I don't think that the soul, you know, the soul is absolutely not, nothing to do with intellect. Panpsychism has nothing to do with intellect. My, my response to them is prove it. I'm willing to accept it, but you have to show me, and you don't have to prove it absolutely, but at least give me a couple of steps that we can use to get at it. And that's where their whole idea falls apart because there is no way to approach God, to approach this, whatever this ethereal force is. But we can approach the functioning of the brain using the brain as a substrate. Right. So in talking about the brain as the seat of, uh, of consciousness and, and all uh, conscious functioning, we can make progress. And, and, and we're thinking of the, of the mind as a soul that has no physicality to it at all. There's, so almost by definition, there's no way to study it scientifically. Exactly. Although some people would say there's, there are ways to study it by through awareness. But again, you can't really share that awareness directly with anybody else. But don't forget, a hypothesis, the basis, the scientific basis of a hypothesis is that it can be proven and disproven. And disproving is very important. So if you have a hypothesis, we have to see whether that hypothesis is true by seeing if we can disprove it. Yeah, I know there was a, a surgeon who decided to test the theory that the mind and body separate uh, during anesthesia and people have claimed to look down upon themselves as they're being operated on. So he, he put a little sign up near the ceiling that could only be seen if you're floating up there. <laughs> <laughs> and so far, none of his patients have, have reported what they saw up there. But um, that, that's an example that not seeing it doesn't disprove it, but seeing it would pretty powerful evidence so, so let's uh let's shift now to talking about interventions for pain starting with the uh, pharmacological interventions that's the promise and the hope because taking a pill for pain is sort of the simplest thing you could, one could do if it worked and it worked not just worked well but worked without side effects so what are the obstacles to success in that area of course the opioid uh, crisis uh, has been in the news for a couple of years now what what's the best use for opioids and uh, what are the pitfalls and, and what would the next generation of pain uh, reducers look like? Well, I think the, the biggest obstacle to developing a drug for pain is time and money. It's going to require a long time and it's going to require a lot of money. And you have to start with a target. See, it was very easy for pharmaceutical companies to take advantage of what was, what's been known for centuries. Okay, opiates have been used since the biblical days to treat pain. 
So knowing that there was something in the poppy seed that eliminated pain, it was just a matter of isolating it. And then once it was isolated, uh, modifying it. And so you have all of the opiate derivatives. That was a relatively straightforward process. Our willow bark was used by, has been used for centuries to eliminate some pain. Well, willow bark contains acetosalicylic acid, which is a primitive form of aspirin. So what Bayer did is they made it acetosalicylic acid, which is less corrosive to the stomach. And so what they did then is they took advantage of things that were known. If you want to develop a drug against pain, you need a target that is your starting point. And identifying a target is extremely difficult. There are very, very few molecules in the body that are unique to a specific tissue. You know, nature doesn't have an infinite number of possibilities for manufacturing things. And most of the targets are kinases. So I think right now there are something like 550 kinases. And that's a kind of enzyme, yes? An enzyme, right. Kinase is an important enzyme because it takes energy and it transforms or activates other enzymes that then can manufacture things. So kinases, if you block a kinase, you block a lot of processes downstream from the kinase. But the problem is that there is no one kinase that's specifically found in the nervous system. So anything that you develop, any inhibitor of that kinase is going to have side effects. And a side effect is one of the major problems in drug development. You've got to minimize the side effects. And that, that's extremely difficult. So what you can do is develop a drug and then show that the side effects are worth suffering in order to relieve whatever the target is. And as I said, that's extremely difficult. You can't pick a kinase that's in the nervous system that you know affects pain, but is also going to shut down the liver or the kidneys or something else. So that's, that's the first problem. So this is far beyond what we can do now, but what we would, would need is something that identifies the target, not just by its characteristics, but by its location and by its function. And that's way more complicated. Exactly. It's much more complicated, much more complicated than taking an opiate or taking opium and making a derivative of it because you know it's going to work, even though there are side effects. So you're, you're absolutely right. You would need to really find something specific. And that's why there's been so much, so much molecular biology devoted to the pain pathways and identifying all of the channels, all of the receptors, all of the kinases that are activated in the processing of pain, sending pain from the periphery up to the brain. But it's none of the compounds that I know of, certainly not the channels, are unique to the specific neurons that convey the pain. So you can't block a sodium channel. You can't block a kinase that's present in all the other sensory neurons or is present somewhere else in the body. So that's the first problem. You have to have a, car, you have to have a target. So say you found a target. Then what you have to do is develop a drug to the target. And that requires an assay. So it, pharmaceutical companies used to take the drug and they would make potential inhibitors and they would assay them. And it would take hours and hours and hours to do these assays. They'd have to do thousands of them. Then they automated the process. So they can do 10,000 assays in, in minutes. And that has reduced the cost. But the problem is it's also very expensive because they have to design all of these different drugs. 
Another way of doing it is the way that we did it with our drug. We used proteomics. We isolated a target, which was a, happened to be a kinase, and we mapped the active site, and we designed an inhibitor that would fit into that site and block the activity of the enzyme. This is called rational drug design. So that's an option for the pharmaceutical companies don't really take advantage of. So now you have a target and you have isolated, you have an inhibitor of that. Now that inhibitor has to be specific. It can inhibit any of the other 500 kinases and it has to bind with very high affinity, which means it blocks that kinase at very low dosages because you can't have people taking enormous amounts of these things. Okay, now you have that the compound that does that would be the lead compound. Then you have to test its metabolism. So you inject it into an animal. Where does the drug go? How is it excreted? How is it metabolized? How long does it stay in the bloodstream? How long does it stay in the body? These are called ADME properties, and they're very, very important. You can't have a drug that hangs around for hours when its, its activity needs to be expressed in only minutes. It has to be targeted. So that's another obstacle that has to all be overcome. And once you have all of that information, you test it and see whether it has efficacy against a particular kind of pain. And there are animal models for that. Once you've done that, once you've done that and you've had to test the animals and produce data showing that it's highly effective, then you, you go and you say, all right, this is a great drug, it's specific, it's uh, selective, it has good ADME properties, it inhibits the pain in animal models. Now we need to test it in humans. Now you go to clinical trials. But to go to clinical trials, you have to make massive amounts of this drug. Well, if the drug has six steps in its synthesis, what that means is that each step, you have to purify the desired compound away from all the other ingredients. So a sixth six step you might want to get 98 to 99% efficiency is an extremely difficult thing to do. Once you have taken that into consideration, then you can give it to clinical one trials, which are going to determine whether or not this drug is going to harm people. So you get 100 volunteers, you give it to them, and if there are no harmful effects, then you go to phase two, where you give it to a small population of people who have the pain and see if it's effective. But you've got to double that population because you have to test a placebo. So that adds to the cost. Then if it's effective, it's more effective than a placebo, and <laughs> that's not easy to do, then you go to a large number of people, 10,000 or more, and you give them the drug, and then you see the efficacy in those people, again, versus a placebo. And after all of this is done, you have to submit all of the records from the day that you discovered the protein, the, the inhibitor, all the way on through, and you give that to the FDA, and then they make a determination whether this drug is valuable. Wow, thank you. That was a really concise uh, description of the entire process of, of uh, designing and developing and testing and a drug. So we were just talking about drug development, and I'd like to talk about psychological uh, interventions for pain. But before we do, I was wondering if we could just very briefly touch on some of the non-drug but still physical interventions, such as transcranial magnetic stimulation and optogenetics and maybe even neurosurgery. 
Well, I think optogenetics has a great possibility for discovering where pain is finally appreciated, the suffering. If we can isolate a module in the brain to which all the other information about the pain is sent, so this is the module that makes the final determination of how much pain, the intensity of the pain. And the onerousness of the pain, right? Yes, exactly. So it's taken into account the cognitive factors, the decision-making, the reward, the fear, the anxiety, all of these things feed into that one center, that module. And then that is going to give us the awareness, the consciousness of the pain, the suffering. If we can find that module, and there may be ways of modulating that, that module externally, optogenetics is a great possibility because optogenetics enables you to insert channels into subgroups of neurons in the brain. They use opsins. Opsins are responsive to light. There are opsins that respond to one wavelength of light that allows calcium to enter the cell. There's another one, a different wavelength of light that allows chloride to enter the cell. So now you can regulate the positive negative respect of the cell. You can prevent the cell from firing and you can make it fire. Even more exciting is that there are now transmembrane proteins that you can insert that regulate functions. They have a receptor that will activate internal sequences that will change the neurons and can do that over a long time. What this entails, if I understand it correctly, is a extremely fine fiber optic wire is inserted into the brain it's, and it, it terminates at, a, at a, some cells that when exposed to a certain spectrum of light will uh, fire the neuron almost like a remote control <laughs> device in a sense. I mean, it's, um, it's a way of, of stimulating a neuron, it's a way of inhibiting a neuron, it's a way of changing the way in which internal kinases are activated. And it's been successful so far as I can tell from things like Alzheimer's disease, they're working on a depression. I think it's a wonderful tool, it's gonna to be further refined, but the key is to find whether or not there is a center in the brain that is in fact responsible for that last, that's the suffering aspect of pain. The hope is that it's localized enough. Correct. That there's a part of the brain that is either responsible or is necessary as a, as a necessary component. So I think this is actually a good segue to talking about the psychological interventions for pain. My understanding from reading your book and from other things I've, I've read is that the nervous system has nerves that increase the transmission of other nerves, and then there are inhibitory nerves that will decrease. And similarly, with, with pain, you have processes in the brain that increase the experience of pain, and you have other processes that inhibit the experience of pain. And that uh, a lot of the psychological event interventions, of course, are the latter, learning, learning techniques that either inhibit the pain or inhibit something that would otherwise would increase the pain, such as fear. And I've noticed this in my own practice, that if someone finds the pain onerous and hates their pain and is fearful of their pain or any of, any of the above, that that tends to increase attention to the pain as well as increasing the intensity of the pain. Anxiety is a great promoter. Uh, it, it exacerbates pain, no question. So there's something about if it's possible to learn to be indifferent, selectively indifferent, not indifferent to life, but indifferent to pain, 
that that can be an enormous uh, advantage. You mentioned in the book about uh, using meditation as a, as a possibility. One aspect of meditation is learning to see whatever comes into the mind as equal to or no different from any other thing that comes into the mind. It's all fleeting, it's all temporary, and it doesn't have to be taken overly seriously, so to speak. And that the same, the same attitude can be developed toward physical pain or emotional pain. People who do mindfulness training, mindfulness practitioners, are able to, to divert attention willfully away from a sensation. And when it's done successfully, they can willfully dismiss pain because they feel that it, they can divert attention to something else. That takes a lot of practice. And the fMRI indicates that this actually does happen, but it does not happen by the same mechanism as a placebo. It uses a different mechanism. There's much more involved in brain activity, but it, uh, it is successful. Right. And, and, and the proof of that, which I find really fascinating, that it's not the same as placebo, is that a, a, uh, an opioid antagonist such as naloxone can actually block the placebo effect, but it does not block the benefits of meditation. So that implies that there's something different going on, which is really, really interesting. Exactly. No, they're, they're both effective. I mean, they both work and they're both non-pharmacological in a sense. Yeah, and in Buddhism, there's a saying that uh, you can have pain without suffering. The pain and suffering are not the same thing, which is really fascinating. And I think w when we're talking about becoming indifferent to the pain or dismissing the pain, doesn't mean that the pain sensation disappears entirely. It's not like you're just somehow censoring it completely. But what you are censoring is the the onerousness of the pain, the, the feeling that pain necessarily has to be the same thing as suffering. Yeah, I mean, that's what the lobotomy patient indicated. And people who have had certain parts of their brain removed, they experience exactly the same thing. They know that they should be in pain, but they're not suffering, so they don't care. And that's what the Buddhists are saying. Yeah, I mean, this is fine. I, I should be in pain, but I'm not going to acknowledge the fact that I'm in pain. I'm not suffering. Right. And then it's tying together the psychological with the physical interventions. You, you talk about in your book the possibility of maybe having some kind of neurofeedback, which is a subset of biofeedback that would increase the activity of one particular area of the brain. I think it was the anterior cingulate cortex that you can have a measure from on a computer of, of, of feedback that you're actually increasing that level of activity in that part. And, and that can result in a reduction of the onerousness of pain and possibly much more quickly than learning to meditate, which I know from my own practice, I'm constantly suggesting meditation and it's the, the rare client who actually takes me up on it, unfortunately, because it is difficult and, it, and it's difficult to teach. I mean, you can't just, even if you're in the same room and say, okay, how, what, are you doing, what are you doing now in your meditation? I mean, you have to be able to report it moment by moment and that's not so easy to do. I mean, it's really hard to teach. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the best study on that was one, but they assumed that one of the modules in that pain matrix that's discussed in my book is, as you said, the anterior cingulate cortex. That seems to be the center that is involved in attention. So if you can regulate that, the attention part of that, you should be able to divert pain. So what they did is they trained volunteers to actively, willfully, turn the ACC on or turn it off. 
And they found out that when they were subjected to, these people were subjected to pain, if they willfully downloaded, downregulated or down uh, unstimulated the ACC, the pain would be diminished. Whereas if they exa exacerbated it by stimulating their ACC, the pain got worse. So this, seemed, this indicates at least that's one study, and it looked like it was very well done, that indicates that the anterior cingulate gyrus, which is a fairly large area, is involved in the attention of pain, paying attention to it, focusing on pain, and modulating that can either exacerbate or diminish the pain. Now, of course, this kind of biofeedback is not readily available because it doesn't work from uh, EEG as ordinary neurofeedback works, you know, which is relatively inexpensive hardware to for a uh, practitioner to purchase. But it was using fMRI, which is a very, very expensive. I mean, you can't just uh, have, have one in every office. So a lot of that is economic. If, if maybe someday there'll be something like an fMRI or a mini fMRI that could, a person could take home, <laughs> you know, then you might be able to, to, to do this uh, on a wide scale. But it's a largely an economic uh, obstacles at this point. If optogenetics works, you could implant the opsins into the neurons in the ACC and regulate their activity externally. Right. So that would require no training at all. That would be done automatically, yes? Exactly. So if we could just summarize, in your book, you have a, a very nice diagram called the Neuromatrix model. It would be nice to be able to show it on the air, but of course, we're, it's, this is radio, not TV. But my understanding is that you have the registering and amplifying of pain, which consists of the sensor perception plus awareness and attention, plus the salience of the pain and the emotions regarding it, such as fear. And then you have the other parts that inhibit pain. So you have the endogenous opioids that can be released. And we didn't talk about this, but uh, self-mutilation seems to work, so, so to speak, by possibly by releasing endogenous opioids and thereby suppressing other kinds of pain. And then you have the, the kind of top-down labeling of the pain as unimportant or, or, or ignorable uh, because there's some kind of higher cause or higher, uh, more pressing situation involved. So it, it, it's, it's a model that really kind of ties together all the different factors involved. And I, I think it nicely encapsulates just how complex a process it is, and, but also how these different parts interact. I think you summarize it very nicely. It shows that pain really has three constituents. It has the pathway that sends the information to the brain. It has the emotional aspects of the pain, the, the fear, the motivation, et cetera. And then it has the cognitive aspects of pain that makes a decision as to whether the pain is worth experiencing or whether it is occurring under circumstances that really have to be paid attention to in which it makes the pain worse. So it is the interaction, dynamic interaction between the networks, these three networks that determine how much suffering there is involved in pain. Yeah, so if there's uh, one take-home message from our talk, it's that pain is not just simply a physical experience. It's so much more complicated than that. And that's both, I think, can be reassuring in the sense that there's a lot more kind of aspects to intervene with than simply blocking it. I mean, it's, it's much more complex than that. I think that that's another good take-home message. So I'm just curious. I mean, you're not a clinician. You're a researcher. But do you have people coming to you asking for advice about how to deal with their pain? I mean, does that come up? Do you have conversations like that? Or, or did you when you were working in the lab? 
Well, people, most people ask me, how does this drug work? Why does this drug work? Why doesn't this drug work? Um, I don't make a diagnosis. I have a lot of experience in clinical anatomy. I mean, I've, I've seen practically every kind of pathophysiology that there is. But no, I do not diagnose pain unless it's something that's obvious. You know, I wasn't talking about diagnosis as much as advice on how to deal with pain. I was thinking particularly the psychological part. Um, I mean, you're not a psychologist, but you're a neurologist <laughs> or a neuroscientist, I should say. But do you, uh, do you get into discussions with people, let's say friends or family that are dealing with chronic pain? Do you, do you find yourself talking about some of these things? Oh, certainly. Certainly. I try to point out attention, the, the significance of attention and how in suffering if it's possible to divert yourself. I mean, dentists play music in their office, right? Uh, hopefully the people are gonna pay attention to the music and not the drill. Where, where they jiggle your cheek as they're putting the uh, Novocaine in. <laughs> so trying to get people to be aware of that if they can shift their attention elsewhere, they can diminish the pain. And I think that that's, that's very important. If people can do that, it will work and it doesn't require a pharmacological approach. Well, Richard, Richard Ambron, a Columbia University professor emeritus and the author of the soon-to-be-published book, The Brain and Pain Breakthroughs in Neuroscience, thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Oh, it was a pleasure. Nice talking to you. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.